Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Hey, Mama Bears. So just a quick note on this upcoming podcast. We're with Monica Klein, who is a former sex ed uh, curriculum teacher for Planned Parenthood and also trained Planned Parenthood later. So we're going to be talking about things that little ears might not want to hear. So or you might not want the little ears in your home to hear. So this might be a good episode to put on um, earphones. Okay. well, we'll see you in a sec. So welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics, and I'm Hillary, and with me is Monica Klein, who is one of the people that endorsed our book. Um, Trying to remember how you and I got in contact with each other. I think it was like, who was the person that introduced us? Do you remember? Actually, I I think I just shot you an email and just let you know that I enjoyed the Mama Bear Apologetics book and that I I use it. I've actually used it and talked to during some of my meetings with parents uh, and and recommended the book. So I think you probably had a lot of Rowlett, Texas parents who bought your book recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like maybe someone who uh, Jill's something or other that's in my parents' small group. Anyway, uh, maybe just kind of all happened at the same time. Um, But I really used a lot of what you said just uh, as direction in the book because you have a very unique perspective in the sense that you were trained by Planned Parenthood on how to teach kids about sex. So in our part two of the book, we're like, what are your kids learning? Uh, what's, what's being taught to my kids? You were one of those people who were teaching those things. So we wanna hear about your story with that, how you got started. Um, and then maybe what some of the aha moments were uh, when you realized maybe this isn't the best thing I should be teaching. Um, and then just your story, how you found the Lord and how, how your teaching kind of changed with that. So I know that Absolutely. was a whole that's a whole lot. So let's start out with just tell us who you are and what your background is. Okay. Well, uh, Monica, my name is Monica Leal Klein, and I'm the founder of It Takes a Family. So that is uh, the organization that I, you know, do all my work with now is really wanting to educate parents so that they are the leading voice for their children and not the world, not the schools, not not even the youth pastor. I really believe and biblically (laughs) believe as well that parents are the stewards of their children. And so it should be mom and dad's voice that is the leading voice in their children's lives. Um, I was also a single mom for nine years. So it's really important for me to also emphasize that whether it is just mom or just dad at home with the children, you are still that leading voice in your children's home. Even if the children are the opposite gender than you, um, our, our children are always looking to their parents for that guidance. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do is, you know, and that was really inspired by the training that I received from Planned Parenthood in a very strange way. <laughs> when I finally left in 2009, I sat at home thinking, what did I do? Why did I do this for 10 years? Why did I work? You know, and so Hillary, that little background there is I used to be a comprehensive sex educator 
that is the graphic sex education that people are seeing in their schools today. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did for over 10 years. And, and Planned Parenthood mentored me on how to teach children on how to have sex using the comprehensive sex education. So when I did leave, I sat at home thinking, you know, what did they teach me? Who are their heroes? You know, and I started researching everything that they had taught me to understand how I could have fallen for their lies. And one of the things that they always said to me is that parents are a barrier to service. And that's a something barrier. I could always Wow. Oh yeah. That, um, so, you know, at some point they trained me in over 10 years, I became a consultant and a title 10 training manager for family planning. And so then I was training Planned Parenthood and at every conference and workshop, they would always say, you know, parents are a barrier to service. As soon as they know that children, that their children are coming into a Planned Parenthood, we never see those kids again. So we want to make sure that they're not part of the picture. We want to protect the confidentiality of the adolescent. And so I was thinking about that. And many of the things that they would say is that parents are uneducated, parents are ill-equipped, they're old-fashioned, they don't get it. Um, And so I thought, okay, well, if it's a lack of education, no problem. Um, I will start an organization, which is what I did. It takes a family and I will educate parents so that they can talk to their children in, about sex and their bodies, but in a way that is honoring the children and that brings them value. Um, and also just helping parents learn how to have um, healthy attachments with their children so that their children know that they can come to mom and dad with really difficult questions. Um, And it's important that our children can do that. It's important that they can come home and ask you about the transgender movement or any of those things. Even if they're starting to agree with it, your children need to know that they can come to you and that you have an answer for them. So I spent a lot of time training parents about these cultural issues and how to respond. And so that's what I do today. Uh, But like I said, I wasn't always there. I started as an HIV specialist in 2009, right out of college. I did it because I wanted to help people, uh, you know, to prevent the spread of HIV. And my very first job was at a gay organization in Austin, Texas. And they hired me as an HIV specialist to reach out to women of color of childbearing age in high risk areas of Austin, Texas. Mm. So we had the women's um, outreach team. And then we also had a men's outreach team. And that outreach team was for men who have sex with men also in high-risk areas. And so um, that was my first introduction to public health education or public health sex education. I was not a Christian at the time, um, but I was incredibly compassionate. And I have always have have had a heart for marginalized populations. And Mm -hmm. so I really wanted to help these populations that were at risk so that they would no longer be experiencing HIV infection or other STDs. So I did this out of compassion. Mm -hmm. Uh, This brings up a good good point how like we talk about in the book how you have rebels and then you have captives. And the idea of a lot of the people that we're going to be talking to about this or that are involved in this aren't necessarily trying to rebel against scripture. They are literally held captive to bad ideas, bad ideologies. And so for you, I would say you were absolutely a captive to a bad ideology. And once you realized, hey, I don't want to be captive to this anymore, you were able to get out. But I think it's important for people to realize that your motivations 
were to love people and to have compassion um, and that there really is a, a real human behind these. It's like, I think sometimes people just try to demonize everybody. And yeah, there are going to be some out there that really are just, you know, uh, I don't know, that know exactly what they're doing and do it anyway. But for, I don't know what kind of percentage it would be, but there are a lot of people who are just really legitimately trying to help people. Absolutely. And that I try to emphasize that quite a bit, the, the need for grace in this movement, whether it's the abortion industry, or the sex ed industry, the grace is so important. Um, it, you know, Hillary, if you had met me back then, and if you had said, hey, I'd like you to read this book, or can we talk, you know, about my perspective? I probably would have been a very rude person to you. And, and I would have said, get your Jesus out of my face. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, you know, it, it's very likely that people would have thought, well, she's one of those evil people, mm -hmm. but really we're just deceived. Yeah. We're very deceived and we're not, we didn't, you know, we don't understand it at that moment about God's truth. Um, and it took time. It took a lot of time for me to finally get to that place. Um, and that was, that's an interesting story in it, in and of itself, but approaching all of this with grace is important. Approaching the homosexual population with grace is also important because for me, when I look at the homosexual population or the transgender population, which I worked with closely over those 10 years, I, I look at them and I think, you know, God created these men or these women in his image. And he has like, for example, with a man, there's something phenomenal, something important. He wants this man to accomplish and he's being deceived away from his creation, away mm, from his destiny. So and that's what I see. Um, it, I saw it then. And I see it today um, that that is really what it is, is they're being distracted from what God has for them, the kind of husband or, or the kind of father they could become, or just just their masculinity. Um, there's such power in masculinity. I tell yeah. dads all the time that it's your, your very presence as a masculine male is enough to protect a whole room of women. You know, yes. it, it's just, just your presence. You don't have to speak. Now imagine if you actually speak. Mm. Uh, so your presence plus your speech, plus your advocacy is even more empowering. And so I really empower men. Uh, but back then, Hillary, I was definitely someone who was knocking down the men. Mm. Um, so I, I was a very different person, but I was someone who had compassion and I wanted to help. Um, shortly after being hurt, um, at this organization, they said, you know, you need to learn how to teach children about sex as well, because we talk to children a lot. Yeah. So they sent me across the street to Planned Parenthood. And that's when Planned Parenthood started to mentor me specifically on how to reach children with the sex ed, um, you know, message. Mm. Yeah. And so I think a lot of what you've said, uh, goes into sex positivity, which is one of a uh, chapter eight in our book, where this is one of the big things that your kids are being taught. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what sex positivity is and how you saw that happening in Planned Parenthood along with, um, I think you saw like a real desensitization, a normalization, uh, repetition, like all these little tactics that we talk about um, in the book, like uh, and, and moralization of things. Uh, and grooming, all of Absolutely. all the things. Let's hear about all the things. <laughs> Let's hear about all the things. Well, all those things will be addressed by how I was trained by Planned Parenthood on just in just one day. That first day that I walked across the street into the clinic, the director of sex education um, sat me down, and it was a one-on-one -on -one training, and she became my mentor. 
And uh, she started to tell me about the extreme cases of young girls coming into the clinic so that, she, so that I understood how uh, important this work was. Uh, she explained that these girls were as young as 10 years old, uh, that the girls were coming in with sexually transmitted diseases and seeking out abortions, and also in some cases, having to remove toys from their bodies. Oh my God. Uh, children's toys. Um, and my first reaction was, uh, you know, cause I had not been a sexually active youth myself. So my first thought was that this was not consensual. Um, also obviously abuse was occurring cause these girls mm -hmm. are only 10 years old. And yeah. when you're talking about objects in their body, like this is abuse, which is what I said to her. And she said, and I said, so, so you need teach me, how do I teach these girls to avoid sexual behaviors or, or places where they might be put into that position. And she immediately corrected me and patted me on the knee. And she said, no, dear, we're not here to teach them not to have sex. We're just here to teach them how to do it safer. Yeah. She explained that the objects in their bodies, that was, that it was just that they were immature and they didn't understand what was safe and that it was our job to teach them how to do things more safely. Um, so she did not see this as abuse. And so when you say so sex positivity, I think your listeners need to also understand that it's, it goes beyond sex positivity. What it really is, is that there's this very dark and distorted philosophy and view of our children and view of sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so what she is admitting is that uh, very similar to Alfred Kinsey, oh, which is oh, one Kinsey. of their heroes. That they, yeah. Yeah. I, I know Alfred Kinsey is really, really super gross, yeah. but Alfred Kinsey, I ended up researching him because his name kept coming up in all of my trainings and That's in conversations true. with other sex educators. And he was seen or is seen as their hero. And so, uh, you know, so basically, you know, he, he believed that children were sexual from birth. He tried to, um, justify that with his unethical research on children, which can be read. We won't go into that right nope. now. Um, but, but that, that is the beginning. I think sin period is the beginning, of course. but really we can trace it back to Alfred Kinsey, mm -hmm. um, and his belief that children are sexual from birth and have a right to sexual pleasure, mm. uh, again, and that you must remove the protective barrier from children in order to get children to do that, which means you have to remove the parent. You have it, to destroy the family. Mm -hmm. This goes into uh, what we were talking about, the, uh, the national sex ed standards right now, the NSES literally states right. in there that, I mean, that they say pleasure and consent. That's what is healthy sexuality. And I think uh, there's even a line in there where it talks about exploring all these different options of, you know, what gender are you and uh, what sexuality are you, Th that exploration in itself is healthy. And so uh, I think I made the point where it's like, if your kid wants to learn how to choke, then, you know, we want to teach them how to do it safely, not say, hey, maybe this right. isn't a good idea. And this idea where you, um, for the parents that don't know what sex positivity is, it's this idea that you can't judge anyone else's uh, sexual decisions, no matter what they are. Uh, to do so is to be sex negative. Um, and so they believe that uh, children up to adults have a right to this pleasure as long as it's consensual um, and that no decision they make is unhealthy unless it doesn't bring pleasure or it's not consensual. That's it. That's, that's the, how the morality, that's how the worldview is based right there. 
And that is exactly how I was trained by Planned Parenthood and by the whole community of sex education, because I was also trained by the Centers for Disease Control, um, by different you know, training centers. Um, and that's the belief that, that it is judging for us to tell a young girl or a young boy that they, you know, to tell them not to be sexually active is, is oppressive and judgmental. Um, so what she let me know is that I just need to meet them where they're at and teach them how to do it safer. Mm-hmm. Her next lesson was that um, when I walk into a room full of children, that I am to assume that they've all done anything and everything when it comes to sex. And if they haven't, they will. And it's my job as the sex educator to teach them how to do all those things safer. Nice. So when you mention choking or anything, uh, the use of, you know, sex toys or whatever it may be. Whether they mention it or not, my job as a sex educator was to tell them how to do those things in a way that can reduce their risk of getting disease or conceiving a child. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it was, but then at the same time, she also said, now the first, the first thing you need to do with them is an icebreaker, which is to break down their inhibitions. So on one hand, she said this was to break down inhibitions. Yes. Yes. Because so on one hand, she's saying that children are doing everything, but on the other hand, she's also admitting that they're inhibited. Okay. So which is it? Of (laughs) course, we know that children are inhibited, naturally inhibited. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. So she did say, listen, they're not going to want to tell you what they're doing. They're not going to want to admit it. This is how she rationalizes it. So you need to break down their inhibitions so that they can start to talk about it and you can talk to them about sex. So the first exercise is an icebreaker where you basically ask, and you can see this in some of the curricula even today, Mm -hmm. is asking the children to speak out the names, the slang names of body parts or or different sex acts or whatever in whatever words they want to use, slang terms. And the instructor writes them on the board or you get the kids to write them on the board or on sticky notes or whatever. I would just feel dirty doing that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Exactly. It is. It is dirty. You know, at the time we used either whiteboards or easel pads. And so what you see at the end of this exercise is just a a collage of dehumanizing terms Mm. that these children have been speaking out, have been hearing and have also see it. And the reason I say that is we've got three senses there. They're speaking it, they're hearing it, they're seeing it. And now their peers and the authority in the room are all supporting each other in this. So we are now seeing not only breaking down the inhibitions, but we're now normalizing this kind of behavior and we're normalizing the dehumanization of of our bodies and, and one another. Yeah. And saying that the authority is giving approval to all these things. It's like, you know, you you might be shy if you think, oh, I'm not supposed to do this. But once you have an adult that's saying right on there, you know, uh, tell me more. All of a sudden, I mean, whatever inhibitions they might have naturally had to, uh, this is maybe not the healthiest thing for me, are now gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even the shy kids in that class have now been it, you know, this has been normalized for them and now they're joining in as well. Mm-hmm. So after that icebreaker, then we start talking about, 
you know, oral, anal, vaginal sex, bodily fluids, how STDs are transmitted, uh, ways to, um, you know, healthy relationships and communication is really about condom negotiation skills. How do you get a partner to use a condom? Um, how do you overcome barriers to not using a condom? Like, oh, pe the, your partner saying that it's not pleasurable. So then you talk to them about lubrication and it goes on and on. And we even go as far as having them role play oh my different scenarios where they then come up with their own words and support each other as a group on ways mm -hmm. that you can communicate condom negotiation skills. So once again, we've got this next exercise in helping children change their behavior where uh, this exercise is, is changing their beliefs about their bodies, their beliefs about intimacy, their beliefs about relationships are all now changing through these exercises that are being done in a class with an authority figure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so once a child who may have never thought about these things at all has now practiced condom negotiation skills, talking about sex. So now it's going to be a lot easier for that child to do that in, in any environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I also think that having these kind of conversations with strangers, whether it's a teacher or a third party that comes in is also teaching children that they can talk about sexually graphic things with adult strangers, yes. which then it's now become normalized. So now if they're on their phone or on the internet and an adult chats with them about sexual things, they can't discern mm. that this is not healthy anymore. Yeah. So I also believe that this is just a way of grooming our children and, and putting them at higher risk for predators. And really, Hillary, this kind of sex education, I'm sure your listeners are, are cringing at every word I'm saying, <laughs> but this is very similar to what predators do. Yeah. They break down in inhibitions of a child and then they slowly introduce them by exposing them to sexual pictures or behaviors until they're now sexually active with the child. And that's what comprehensive sex education is as well. And like you mentioned with the national sex education standards, it's not just getting them into sexual activity, but now it's asking them to explore orientation, explore the possibility that they are no longer the gender that they were, mm -hmm. that they believe that they are, uh, or not that they believe, you know, just their biological sex. And it becomes this horrible cycle that really is slowly, um, I believe, you know, uh, just deteriorating our children. Yeah. And, um, but it's also part of the abortion industry, Hillary. Mm -hmm. So all of this really, if we were to look at Planned Parenthood's annual budget, the first thing that they, the first line item of, of what they spend most of their money on is surgical procedures, which is what we know of as abortion. Hmm. The second line item is sex education. Yeah. Why would they put so much money into sex education? And really it's because it's their marketing tool that feeds into abortion. Yeah. So when you can teach a child to dehumanize themselves and one another through the act of recreational sex, then it's just a natural next step to dehumanize the preborn child. Yes. And so sex education is really all about taking intimacy, taking humanity out of sex. It is pleasure focused. It's objectifying one another. It's become like a material thing. It's putting them at risk of disease. So then they teach them how to get tested and treated for disease. And then it refers them to abortion. And it creates this dependency on these clinics so that it becomes a cycle of behavior for them, yeah. all the while keeping secrets from parents and breaking down the family. So it's a very dangerous, um, really cult mentality. And mm -hmm. I'm part of 
Abby's um, quitters, you know, the people who have come out of the abortion industry. Mm-hmm. And we've all agreed that, that this is a very cult-like mentality and teaching. And we really, as parents and, and, you know, what, and running for office is so important to ensure that these cult beliefs are not being, are no longer in our public school system. Um, But I also believe at this point with the way the schools are, it's time to rescue our children. We need to rescue them from being consistently eight hours plus a day, five days a week of being indoctrinated by these very harmful beliefs. Yeah. So what was the youngest age that you ever taught some of these things? I believe... Um, that we probably spoke to kids as young as nine, 10 years old, um, definitely in the classrooms. Um, back then, we were not allowed in the schools, but teachers would sneak us into the schools. Mm. So we would still be reaching those children. Part of my job as, a, um, as an HIV specialist, I was a street outreach worker. And so that meant that I literally walked the streets of high-risk neighborhoods and, mm. and with a backpack full of condoms and you know, pamphlets and all kinds of things. We would set up, set up ourselves at community centers, barbershops, beauty salons, you know, just, and basically talk to people on the street in their neighborhood, knocking on doors, uh, waiting for the kids to come home from school, things like that. Yeah. And we were there on a consistent basis, um, which again, today makes me think about our evangelism. Um, Mm. is that what are we doing on a consistent basis? Are we knocking on doors? Are we in those neighborhoods? Are we at those community centers uh, helping people out of that kind of uh, behavior so that we can keep them safe as well? Um, And I don't see that. Um, Partly it's because a lot of this is funded by the government. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of money. I mean, I was paid 40 hours a week to do that. So let's talk a little bit about what your aha moment was, because I know you had several where you started realizing kind of the full implications of what this teaching was communicating to the kids that you were talking to. And I know in some way just eventually led you to starting It Takes a Family and being a Christ follower. So tell us a little bit about that process of when you had those aha moments and just kind of what happened after that. Sure. Well, my first aha moment was when Planned Parenthood asked me to go teach 13, 14 year old girls and boys at an alternative school in East Austin. And uh, this alternative school is, is really kids who have been kicked out of other schools. They're high risk. And so this is their last chance for an education. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty rowdy. And uh, I want you to think about who a 13 year old would be, which is probably like six, maybe seventh grade. Yeah. Um, so they're pretty young. So I started the presentation like I normally did a whiteboard behind me. I would write oral sex, vaginal sex, anal sex, and then I would write all the bodily fluids on the other side. And I would begin the conversation about sex and disease and all of that and how they're, how it's transmitted. And a little girl in the back of the room uh, raised her hand, just a beautiful, I'll never forget her face, just a Mm. beautiful girl, um, clear, clear skin, uh, really dark, dark skin, her hair braided mm-hmm. away from her face, just beautiful little girl, very tall too. She's a very tall girl, very <laughs> slender. And she raised her hand 
And, and I'll clean up her language a little bit. She wasn't trying to be disrespectful. This was just reality for her and for Mm -hmm. the rest of the kids. No one flinched at her question, (laughs) Uh, but she basically, she basically asked me when I give boys oral sex, I gag, can you teach me how to do it better? Mm. And I, I paused, I'll admit. And I have heard at this point have heard everything possible because I was everywhere with all kinds of people. Um, but it's, but this is a 13 year old girl. And so I was really surprised by her question. And I said, well, let me clarify, make sure I understand your question and and what you're, you know, what you're going through. I said, so when you're involved in this activity, you gag and you don't like it. You don't like that feeling of of gagging. She said, that's right. I don't, but if you teach me how to do it better, maybe I'll, I'll like doing this. Mm. And I said, well, let's start off with this. Have you ever considered just not doing the thing that you don't like to do? Like, if you don't like doing it, just don't do it. And she just looked at me kind of like, really? And then all the kids straightened up in their little desks and they looked at me and they weren't angry. Planned Parenthood always said that if I ever told kids not to have sex, that they would immediately feel judged and that they would shut down. But these kids did not look judged at all. They kind of looked, they just looked really innocent. Mm -hmm. I said, guys, do you realize, and I pointed at the board behind me, I said, do you realize that you don't have to have sex? You don't have to have oral sex, vaginal sex, or anal sex. And if you don't, you'll never become in contact uh, with anyone's bodily fluids. And if you don't have contact with someone else's bodily fluids, then you won't get diseases and you won't get pregnant. And they kind of sat silent for a little bit. And the little girl who asked the question raised her hand again. And she said, ma'am, no one's ever told us that. And yeah, it, it, that was a big aha moment. That was like, wow. And so I said, guys, you don't, you don't have to be sexually active. You don't have to do these things. And they started talking about ways they could avoid sex. Um, the boys, uh, you know, whether we believe them or not, the boys were like, well, we don't really expect sex. And <laughs> I don't know if they meant it or not, <laughs> but I think they kind of, I think they kind of did. Yeah. And, but they all started talking about ways they could avoid having sex. They, um, they, they lived in, most of them lived at Booker T Washington, which is a government housing in East Austin. Mm-hmm. And they said, we have a community center that has free movies and free snacks. We can go there and watch movies. Um, one of the boys said, well, they have free basketballs and we can grab a basketball and we can go to the basketball court out in the park and we can play basketball. And the 13 year old girl that asked the question, she said, boy, you know, I'm better at basketball than you are. You know, so if we play <laughs> basketball, I'm going to kick your butt. And he mm-hmm. laughed and he was kind of humbled. And he said, yeah, I know, but it'll still be fun. Aww. And they really were talking about different ways that they could not have sex and still be with each other, still hang mm-hmm. out, still playing. They were very, very innocent. I want to make something clear. If you were to look at any Planned Parenthood um, curriculum on sex education, or if you were to look at any curriculum created based on the national sex education standards, you may find that when they talk about abstinence, they're going to talk about other things. They're going to talk about maybe you just touch each other, but over your Mm -hmm. clothes, or maybe you do uh, mutual masturbation, but they do not talking. They do not talk about playing basketball (laughs) or (laughs) watching movies or anything like that. These kids need to be making the curriculum, man. (laughs) I know these, these kids knew, and these were 
high risk children who mm. were sexually active. Now, one of the little girls pulled away from the group and sheepishly, you know, just kind of nervously came up to me and said, ma'am, I can't do what they're doing. Right. So she was asking a question kind Almost of permission. I said, permission. Yeah. And I asked her, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I'm already sexually active. So now I can't say no. Oh. I said, absolutely not. And, and she said, everyone expects it now. I said, well, absolutely not. No one has the right to tell you what to do. No one has the, you, you, no one has the right to tell you that you have to be sexually active. I went to the extreme. I said, honey, if you never want to have sex again, you don't have to. Or if you want to wait until you get married, you can do that. But nobody can pressure you. No one should ever pressure you to become sexually active. I said, so no, you can stop having sex. Well, her little shoulders just fell and she smiled and she went back to the group and kept talking about ways that she could avoid having sex. It was really beautiful. And I have to admit, I, at the time, I'm a comprehensive sex educator. So I'm thinking, wow, I really lost control of the room. You know, I was supposed <laughs> to teach them about STDs and everything. But, um, you know, but they, they, and they knew, they knew a lot of that stuff already, but it, it was definitely an aha moment that these children they do believe that it's expected of them. And this kind of education sets them up to believe that sex is normal in childhood and that it's an expectation. Mm. A lot of people want to say that it's not, that that doesn't do that to the children, but it does. It normalizes it to them. And that is the expectation. So if I invite you to come over and I'm going to teach you how to bake a cake, it's because I expect you to bake a cake. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's not to, so, so this is exactly what they are doing. Mm. And, uh, but really Hillary, I think you're asking about what was the conversion. I mean, that wasn't my conversion. That was just more like, okay, I'm listening to the kids. I'm listening to the fact that they're not happy doing this. So yeah, I'm going to tell them not to do it. But really what God did to change me is that, um, you know, as, as someone who taught sex education, I also lived by that philosophy. So mm -hmm. I fell for the sex positivity. I fell for all those things. Um, at the, but the reality was there was nothing positive about it. I was very mm -hmm. bitter. I was very broken. I used men, men used me. Um, and that was that that's really what comprehensive sex education is. It's to objectify one another and to yeah. not worry about emotions and just focus on physical pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of brokenness in that. And so I did find myself with uh, facing an unplanned pregnancy and I did schedule an abortion immediately because that is what is taught. And I just followed what I was taught. But I reached out to a friend of mine from college who I had gone to an abortion clinic with her when she got her abortion. And everyone that I knew who had had an abortion was very, none of it was a celebration. They were always mm -hmm. very broken and depressed afterwards. Um, and so I, I suppose I called her knowing that this was not, a, yet I was still going to do it. I'll admit many people think, surely you know that it's a baby. I really didn't put two and two together. Um, mm. as, as, as we dehumanize ourselves through the act of recreational sex, we do truly dehumanize that preborn child. We don't, yeah. in some bizarre way, 
do not realize it's actually our child. Mm -hmm. So I call her and she starts to humanize my child. She actually starts to celebrate and imagine what my child would look like. Uh, She imagined what what he would look like as a little boy, knowing who I was dating. She was like, oh, his skin is going to be dark and he'll probably have curly hair. And so she's just imagining him. And I keep telling her, hey, I told you I scheduled an abortion, but she's one of those friends that doesn't stop talking. So she just kept, she them. just kept going. Yeah, exactly. Those are good friends. Then she started. This is probably when it really hit me. And because she said, "What if it's a girl? What if it's a Moniquita?" Mm. And she she basically was calling her me. What if she has your eyes? What if she has your personality? And and I was like, oh. And then I thought, why am I doing this? Why? why am I having this abortion? And, and I had just moved in with my boyfriend. I came from a, I come from a traditional family. My parents disowned me for moving in with my boyfriend. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, now that I'm pregnant, they're going to be even more mad at me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I thought, wow, am I really going to kill my baby? Because my parents are going to be mad at me. Like, this is not the last time they're going to be mad at me. And that's not a good reason to kill your own child. Mm -mm. But that was the first time I ever thought about my baby as a child. Mm. And it's because my friend humanized my child. So I canceled that appointment. I have a 22 year old son today uh, that I love. And and I love pregnancy. I loved raising him. It it just, the moment I decided, the moment I realized he was real, I became a mama bear immediately Immediately was just in love with him. And, um, which is odd because I was a very bitter young woman who did not want to marry or have children, Mm -hmm. but now all of a sudden I was a mama bear and I loved him and I became my mother. Basically I became (laughs) that mom that's going to protect my child, you know, and this is mine, you know, back off. And, um, God used that. Mm -hmm. Now I had a baby. Now I had a child. And by the time my son was a year old, he led me to Christ. Mm. And so I, you know, God invited me to church and and that's a testimony of itself on how he did that. But I accepted Christ when my son was just a year old and that's when things started to change. So next thing I know, I am now the director of sex education at my organization, I'm going to the CDC to choose my evidence-based interventions for both the women and men's program. And I'm implementing those programs in Austin. And one of the things that we had to do, here's another aha moment. One of the things we had to do is conduct a needs assessment that was based on this evidence-based intervention. And really the needs assessment was to really find out whether someone was using condoms or not, because Mm -hmm. comprehensive sex education is doing one thing. They want to increase the consistent use of condoms, period. Mm-hmm. That's it. That is the big, wonderful thing they're trying to accomplish. Um, so that's all they ask about. Do you use condoms? If not, why not? And what would help you use them and whatever. So I'm offering uh, grocery gift cards for the community to come in to do this pre-assessment. And this woman is in front of me and I ask her if she uses condoms. She says, no. I ask her why not, which is the next question on the assessment. She mm-hmm. says, because I get paid more not to. Ooh. And if I have one... Yeah. And if I have one child, I get food stamps. And if I have two children, I get a place to live. And this CDC evidence-based intervention is not going to address her needs. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realized that the community that I served 
had great needs mm-hmm. and sex education doesn't provide a single one of them. Mm-hmm. If anything, it meets them where they're at and it enables them and gives them this false belief that a condom is going to save them and protect them. Yeah. And I sat back and my first thought was this woman needs Christ. Yeah. And I knew that these, these government run programs were not going to do it. And this is mm-hmm. why I'm so passionate about reaching the church because it's the church that should be in these high risk neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. We Absolutely. should be speaking into these communities. My compassion for these people and myself is the same then as it is today. But today my compassion is founded on God's truth rather than a lie. Mm. And it's so important that we, that we reach people. And so this continued, um, you know, where God was showing me more and more the fallacies and the lies and how people were being, how whole communities were dying because of risk reduction education, because that's Mm -hmm. what it is, risk reduction education, be involved in the high risk um, behavior and find ways to reduce your risk as opposed to truly saving people um, away from those behaviors. And um, so it's really just enabling them. And this continued, the more I, you know, was, I eventually was hired by Center for Health Training, now called Cardia as a Title 10 training manager for Texas and New Mexico. I was now training uh, these clinics, Planned Parenthood clinics, And that's where I started to hear from leadership as well, how they wanted to diminish family, how they Mm. wanted to keep secrets from parents, um, how they counsel kids so that they feel, uh, you know, attached to the clinicians rather than their own parents. That is so dependent on them. Um, Yeah, a lot of that. And, um, and the last straw um, was really when I was training Planned Parenthood on human trafficking, which uh, statu- I think it was in 2009 that statutory rape was now considered human trafficking. Mm. And I knew over those years that Planned Parenthood would never report cases of statutory rape. They protected pimps and prostitutes. You know, uh, they saw themselves as heroes because who else was going to test and treat the prostitutes and abort their children? Um And so I naively thought now that it's human trafficking, they're going to understand and they're going to actually report. But uh, long story short, um, as I, you know, tried to train them on what a victim of human trafficking is like and how to identify that victim and how to help them, they disagreed with me. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, I don't understand your reaction. I don't understand why you refuse to protect these women or these, and these children, because a lot of it was, we really were talking about the minor girls who were engaging in sexual activity with adult men. Yeah. And a nurse said, you know, Monica, she said, if she's not with this man this month, she'll be with another one next month. And all of the nurses agreed. And this is why I say they have a very distorted view of our children and a very distorted view of sex. And so we cannot depend on these people at all to protect our children. We, as the stewards of our children need to be doing that ourselves. And as Christians, we need to be there for the orphan and the widow as well. And so we need to be there for those who don't have families, who don't have children or don't have parents of their own to help them through. And also what are we doing to help families um, and marriages? Like what are we doing to help the the mom and the dad Mm -hmm. to ensure that they become the protective cover for their children? And so these things are so important to me, which is why I created It Takes a Family. Um, But, you know, these are just so many different stories of 
of teenagers who just were really admitting that they they are getting mixed messages from the culture and from family and and from people of authority, and they are looking for the authority figures to lead them and to give mm-hmm. them answers. Yeah. And if any of us are silent, so if parents are silent, then they're going to get that guidance from someone else. Yeah. And so when I talk to parents, it's so important that we know, and your book is so important because unless we as parents know what is best for our children, then we can't teach them that either. Yep. And so if we're believing the lies of the culture and about sex positivity, then we are still doing an injustice to our children. Um, abstinence is not laughable. Abstinence mm-hmm. is absolutely doable. Uh, it is safer for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many of us, like myself, have lived a life where we did have sex outside of marriage. And so many parents come to me thinking that they're hypocrites if they're going to teach their children. That is absolutely a lie. I heard that. A lie that that binds us. Yeah. It binds us from being able to teach our children something that is safer for them. So as someone who has come out in probably one of the most more extreme cases of most parents (laughs) myself, um, I, I actually have the authority to be able to teach my son what is best for him because I know the difference. And so now that I know what is right, what is best for me and for my son, I'm going to teach my son what's best. Um, And we also need to have grace for our children because we all know that no matter what we, we can do the very best we can with our children. And I don't believe that they will depart from that truth, but we will sin and our children will sin as well. And so that message that we started off with Hillary about grace, Mm -hmm. we need to have that grace for our children. We need to give them that grace when they make their mistakes, when they sin, or if they do have sex outside of marriage, Mm -hmm. we need to be talking to our spouses about what if our child conceives a child when they're still children and living with us? Uh, because abortion should not be the first thing that you think of. Yeah. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen. But if it does have a plan in place, how mm-hmm. will we re- react? What will we say? What will we do? Yeah. Um, how are we going to react if, if they start watching pornography? What if it becomes an addiction? What will we do? Yeah. Um, these are things that we need to be thinking about in case it happens because we do live in a broken world. Mm-hmm. Um, so along with teaching them what is right, we need to also be prepared to show them grace and forgiveness and redemption. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as to the thing where you were saying that um, we need to be the ones telling them truth. Um, my cousin has a friend of hers that every time her, uh, you know, gaggle of these teenagers would come to her house as they would leave, she'd say, OK, go off, have fun. Don't have sex till you're married. And it was just kind of, you know, sort of this joke, but it's this thing of, you know, saying it. And one of the guys that was in the woman's uh, or her son's friend group there sometime later in college calls her and says, I just want to say thank you for saying that to me because nobody else was willing to say that to me. And he really carried her words with him into college. And I don't, you know, know what like most of his decisions were, but I think his decisions were more along the lines of safe sex till uh, till marriage. And it was because he had this one parent who would just say it every time they left the house, which is, uh, we have a uh, it's an afterword at the end of the mama bear guide to sexuality that's titled the things to repeat to your kids until they want to gag. And it's along these lines of like, <laughs> the, the more you say something, the more it gets, you know, burrowed into the brain and it actually does stick with them. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to us about this and for sharing your story 
and for kind of reaffirming that like all these lies that we're talking about, they're going on in the real world. Uh, Planned Parenthood and other organizations are absolutely just perpetuating these lies. And but there is a way out. And especially there is just um, a place for the church in this. And I, and I really hope that, um, that this book is going to get churches to start talking about sexuality in a healthy way, because if we don't do it, there are plenty of other resources. I'll say that in scare quotes for, for kids to go to. So, um, as, as we, as we wrap this up, I would like to ask, what are some specific prayer requests for your ministry that I could pray over you before we leave? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think prayer requests would be also that God would anoint to take a family with the ability to strengthen parents across the globe. And that is really the vision that God has given me um, is just really strengthening family mm-hmm. across the globe. So not only do we need to strengthen our families in our homes, but the family of Christ. Yeah. And, and many people say, well, Monica, where's your secular message? Cause there's some people who don't believe in Christ. Well, I believe that we're going to be adding many people to the kingdom of Christ. So Mm -hmm. I am one of those people that rejected Christ for a long time and he saved me. And so, uh, just really just a prayer that God will use. It takes a family to reach families across the globe for him. Very good. Well, before we go, I would like to just pray over you. Thank Uh. you. Father God, we thank you for Monica. I thank you so much that um, you have given her the experiences that she's had, Lord, so that she can actually be an ambassador. You do not let anything that we do go to waste. And we feel so humbled, Lord, that you can use even our sin to be a way to spread the message of your love and your redemption and your truth. God, we just pray for it. It takes a family Lord, I do pray that you would just give them a special anointing, that you would be increasing their reach. Lord, we pray for families in the U.S. We pray for families abroad and for just across the entire globe. Lord, I pray that um, you would be returning the hearts of the fathers to the mothers. I know it talks about in scripture, fathers to the sons, but I just want to pray for that marriage, Lord, that family unit, that the hearts of the men would be turned towards their wives and the hearts of the wives would be turned towards their husbands, Lord, so that they would form just an unbreakable bond that uh, raises healthy kids in an area where they have access to their mom and their dad and security, Lord, security and stability. Uh, So much of what's going on within sexuality, Lord, is because people are searching for that connection because they didn't have it in their families, Lord. So we just pray that you would strengthen the families. And as we see stuff going on in politics and in in, um, in the, the lawmaking and in the school boards and all the things where we see chaos happening, Lord, we pray that strong families would come and they would speak up. And Lord, I just pray that you would give Monica the words, um, the ideas and the energy, Lord, to accomplish the mission that you have set um, aside for her, Lord, that you have specifically called her by name. You've given her the background to where she has earned the right to be heard. And I pray that you would just um, have blessing on her and on that ministry. In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hillary. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. And um, yeah, we will hopefully start getting some more podcasts done for all our mama bears, uh, the first of many to come. So thank you so much. Wonderful. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Thank you.
We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.